Welcome to episode 5 of Poor Man's History. My name is Tyler. Your name is Jody. And I got a cat on my lap and he's purring so loud you might hear it. Last time we recorded, I brought to your attention a book. A book entitled No One May Ever Have the Same Knowledge Again, Letters to Mount Wilson Observatory. Yeah. 1915 and 1935. Letter from unknown person to the observers at Mount Wilson. Read, then pass this to a proper person. This is in all caps. The earth is flat and stands fast, comma, prove it. Delusions. (laughs) Delusions, or fictions in some cases, have become public opinions, as is the case of the shape of the earth. I dreamed last night I was in court, when a man arose and made a charge against me. No action against me being taken by the judge, I followed my accuser from the courtroom and outside. I asked him, what is the trouble? He said, you told my hired man that the earth was flat and stands fast. (laughs) He, being an educated foreigner, made a drawing to show your plan of a flat earth. Then he took a copy of the plan and began to fasten it to the outside wall of a building. Looked at the drawing and I said, it was a good work. Let it stay. My accuser then took the copy of the drawing from the wall and threw it on the earth. I picked it up and took it into the court and showed it to the judge, and he saw there were two copies. I then took my seat in the court in peace. That was all a dream. This is poor man's history. Uh, We like to do cold opens. We have two stories tonight. Yes. Please tell me a story. We're going to talk about a woman... Her name is Derby Wagner Richardson. So Derby Wagner Richardson was a night shift security guard at Steiberg Engineering in Racine, Wisconsin. She was a mom of two. This was one of the three jobs she was juggling while she was going through a messy divorce. So for part of her job, she was supposed to patrol the inside of this locked building that was surrounded by a fence topped with barbed wire, if you can imagine. Engineering building? Yeah. Okay. So around midnight on March 22nd, 1987, she checks in by telephone with the Wauwatosa security firm that she worked for. The call was part of her nightly routine, and she was supposed to make them every hour. So she does the one at midnight. And then the, the call that's supposed to happen at 1 a.m. never happens. Around 1.35 in the morning, she is reported missing to police by the company. Her call doesn't come in at 1, and they're like, where's Derby? <laughs> Not the sort of job you can be smoking weed at and you, you miss the call by 45 <laughs> yeah, minutes right. or something. They already have helicopters descending. <laughs> Officers go to Steiberg and they start looking for her and she drove a Pontiac Sunbird. They can't find her. Seven hours later, an officer sees Derby's car parked in a driveway at 1546 
Layered Avenue, which is just north of Steiberg Engineering. You're saying the police officer saw the car and said, this is a derby car. This is a derby car, and you know how I know it? Because there's blood dripping out of the trunk. Oh, fuck. Yeah. There was blood dripping out of the trunk of the car. Open the trunk. They find her body. She's naked. Her mouth had been gagged with tape. Her throat and wrists had been slashed so badly that she was almost decapitated. So over the next 24 hours, her tan uniform, her security badge, a shoulder patch from her uniform, and a brown shoe were found along Spring Street between Newman and Airline Roads. I don't know where that is in proximity to this place that she was working at. A man living on Island Avenue found some of her personal papers and a newspaper carrier found her appointment book on Spring Street and Highway H. So So her personal effects are spread along several streets. Yeah, which is really weird and creepy. I mean, somebody must have just been throwing them out a window. That's what I'm picturing, yeah. Yeah. Investigators believe that she was killed somewhere else, brought back to the alley near her job. They believe she struggled with her attacker and that the killer was most likely someone she knew. So that happened in 1987. I'm going to go forward a little and then we're going to go back a little bit. You'll understand why in a second here. So there's a spokesperson for the police department. His name is Sergeant Bernie Cooper. And he said over the years, there's been a great deal of information that has come in directing the investigation towards one particular person. According to newspaper archives, that person is Wagner Richardson's estranged husband, Fred Wagner Richardson. A tip led police to believe that a car resembling Derby's was seen near Fred Wagner Richardson's rooming house on State Street that night. Witnesses reported seeing someone loading something into the trunk of that car. The car is seen on State Street, which is one of the streets you mentioned. Yeah. Where her estranged husband lives. Somebody sees something being stuffed into the trunk of the Derby car. A car resembling Derby's. Is that a Derby car? A search warrant was executed at the site immediately, but police have never gathered enough evidence to charge him with the murder. Fred Wagner Richardson has always maintained his innocence. He was never arrested or charged, and he no longer resides in Racine. But through this guy's attorney, this guy named Domingo Cruz, Richardson has consistently rejected any suggestion that he was involved in the homicide. Cruz, in addition, once scoffed at the police focus on his client and suggested it resulted from a desperate desire to make an arrest. Hmm, A real uh, Afanati figure. Yeah. You have a woman that is... Not just killed, but pretty brutally murdered. Generally, crime of passion. There's some personal feelings motivating you, right? Probably hard to cause enough physical trauma that it spills out from a trunk. Yeah. You know, if your goal is just to kill somebody, you wouldn't have to work so hard at it. She, I'm sure, was dead a long time before her head was almost right. gone. Like, <laughs> If you're just someone who's trying to kill just somebody. <laughs> He's just trying to do a regular killing. (laughs) Cruz remains Richardson's attorney, like, still. 
But he's he was why why would we know that if he was never charged? What is Cruz still doing for him? He's still innocent. <laughs> he's probably got him on retainer or something, so that if anything were to come up, then you say hey <laughs> like i've been paying yeah <laughs> for example <laughs> something were to suddenly to come up at the time of the homicide police did recover evidence from both the areas of steiberg engineering and where wagner richardson's car was found that DNA evidence was submitted to crime labs for analysis, along with fingerprints put through the automated fingerprint identification system. So far, the killer has not produced a hit. Police are urging anyone who might be able to provide additional information, call them. And that's the problem. It's like 1987. If you remember something right now from 1987 in Racine, Wisconsin, you know, call. Well, an interesting note about this is this murder happened in 1987. In 1992, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Crime Stoppers program. Yes. So, well, it's a painful reminder. A Madison woman reenacted the murder of her daughter for television cameras, hoping her efforts will help find the young woman's killer. So this was back in 1992. Wagner said the reenactment was a painful reminder, but she did it because she wants her daughter's murderer to be found. I've often wondered about true crime shows where sometimes people involved in the actual story will reprise their roles in the reenactments they film, like the B-roll. And I always wondered, like, what that's like on set when... The, the woman whose husband got murdered, when, when she's filming those scenes, like, is there a director being like, more tears, your husband just died. Come on. Uh, but this is another layer of crazy because she acted in the role of her deceased daughter. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> well, and I'm also curious to know what the reenactment looked like. They knew she was a security guard. They knew she was found parked in this driveway, not that terribly far away. They knew what condition they found her in, but they found her seven hours later. This didn't have like a, a definitive time of death as far as like they didn't share it, you know. So then it's like, well, how do you know what to even do for a reenactment? Do you know what I mean? They think she was kidnapped and taken somewhere else and then brought back because of the scatterings of her belongings. But somebody could have also driven around after they killed her to get rid of her stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just weird to me. I don't mean to seem aloof over here. I've been Googling Steiberg Engineering, and I was looking up if Steiberg ever made a statement on this. And I'm looking at a paper archive from, like, 1987. Steiberg Jr., president of the engineering firm, said a check after Wagner Richardson's body was found indicated nothing had been taken from the firm. He and Ackley said burglary did not appear to be a motive in the slang, quote, this was probably something personal in her situation, Steiberg said. <laughs> Thank you, Steiberg Engineering. <laughs> oh, my God. Guys, I have a statement. Relax. I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, nothing Bye. was taken. <laughs> Aside from the like eyewitness accounts and the evidence that 
put physical evidence around the house of the the estranged husband. Uh, the fact that if the security guard at an engineering plant is found murdered, you might expect this was part of a gaining access to. Yeah. Uh, since that was apparently not the case whatsoever, certainly would suggest not not to borrow a line from Steiberg Jr., but it's probably personal in nature. Yeah, I guess maybe I understand why her husband still has Dominic Cruz on <laughs> on speed dial. You know, what's frustrating is the fact that her ex, there's a chance he did it. There are cases all this over. This isn't Lugan build, by the way. You can say, this guy fucking did it. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This guy definitely well, did uh, it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of times where police officers know somebody did it, but they don't have they don't have the case yeah yeah you need to have compelling evidence otherwise you're gonna go through this whole thing it's gonna be a big fucking waste of time and money and at the end of it then that person gets away where if you had waited and maybe hoped that you could put some other piece of the puzzle together then they would actually get convicted of it chances are pretty good if they had dna and it didn't hit make a hit now i don't know if they did that thing where they'll sometimes go into people's garbages or whatever and then try to match DNA that way, I don't know if they've done that. Are you suggesting we mount an, an elaborate catfish operation where we befriend him and then send him as a Christmas present a 23andMe? <laughs> His lawyer probably warned him against that, right? By the way, don't you ever do a fucking yeah, Ancestry.com. Don't you, ever you stay the fuck away from that. Don't you ever, don't ever send a fluid to anybody don't ever for the send rest a, of your life. Don't ever send a fluid to anybody. He brings that up a lot in the, in the bedroom. Sorry, my lawyer advised me not to transfer fluids I can't to anybody. Send a, I can't I need send to you a fluid. I'll be taking the condom with me. Uh, By the way, did you hear about what happened to my ex-wife? I'm going to search... I sometimes, you know, will think to myself, I'm going to look on Facebook. Oh. Oh, no. Well, this is Fred Wagner Richardson. I think this is the one. If you know me, then enough said. <laughs> he checked into blues and R&B in Racine. What are the chances that somebody would come back to Racine? You know, what's tough is he's into the Young Turks. Oh, no. How many liberals do we have to kneecap? His picture is of Barack Obama. I was going to... So I was going to be like... What the heck? I guess maybe I'm realizing something about my own biases that I was like, this guy didn't vote for Obama and then kill a person. Well, he did kill the person first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What do you got for me? I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before. I regaled you with a story about a Cold War uh, uh, adventure in Wisconsin. Yeah. This is not Wisconsin-based, but it does take place during the Cold War. Are you familiar with the phrase, we can neither confirm nor deny? Yep. This is a very um, boilerplate government response to inquisitions. We can Mm -hmm. neither confirm nor deny that. That phrase has a name, and it has a story behind it. And I'd like to tell you about it. So in 1968, during the Cold War, we're monitoring a lot of Soviet subs and their their movements. 
Soviet Pacific Fleet assets were observed conducting a surge deployment in the North Pacific. We can't have that. We, we will not stand for it. The United States Office of Naval Intelligence uh, looks at this activity and reckons that it's a possible reaction to the loss of a Soviet submarine. This area was known to be patrolled by Soviet nuclear subs, subs that frequently pushed the line towards the United States West Coast. This was a, a known thing. They believed that it was a possible sunken submarine, that all this activity, it, w- it was them searching for a lost sub. So they're watching these Soviet movements, these ships search for weeks, and eventually operations kind of return to normal. The search was unsuccessful, and they kind of give up. However, the American SOS-US Hydrophone Network, this was an organization that monitored sonar in the Pacific. They were asked to review its recordings in the hope of detecting an explosion or implosion that might point them to a place where a sub might have sank. Why would they care? Because we want their code books, we want their nukes, we want their technology. Got it, got it. They're on the hunt for Red October. Exactly. So the Navy analyzes this acoustic data, and they find a sound event that they believe is the implosion of a sub. They think they can locate the wreck of the submarine, and they also realize that this site is hundreds of miles away from where the Soviets were looking. Uh-oh. Somebody was going rogue. Using Point Sur's date and time of the event, Naval Intelligence was able to localize the site of the K-129 wreck. In July of 1968, the Navy initiates Operation Sand Dollar. They deploy the USS Halibut from Pearl Harbor in Hawaii to the wreck of the site. Don't ever forget. 9-11? Pearl Harbor. Ah. So their objective was to find and photograph the K-129. So they go out there to try and find the sub. After three weeks of searching, they find it. They spend several weeks taking over 20,000 close-up photos of the sub. They take 20,000 photos, they send them back to the Pentagon, and the Pentagon says, I think that's a sub. Also, like, there's people dead in there, right? I actually have something to say about that. That'll be coming up. So 1970, two years later, based on this photography, the Defense Secretary Melvin Laird and Henry Kissinger, I don't know if you're familiar with them, the National Security Advisor at the time, they advise a plan to secretly recover the wreckage so that the U.S. could study Soviet missile technology as well as possibly recover cryptographic materials, codebooks, etc. This takes them two years to come up with this idea. Uh, I can't comment on... <laughs> yeah, they had the photos, and then two years later, Guys, they're like, let's go get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need more photos. 15,000? Get the hell out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> so they proposed this. Nixon and the CIA are like, let's do it. Let's recover this sunken sub. So here's the problem. This sub is at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. A logistical problem, but also trying to recover this sub puts them right out in the open where the Soviets are almost certainly watching. If they go to try and recover it, the Soviets are going to know. And they're going to say, hey, you know, I'm just 
Uh, I left my baseball hat uh, in that area the other day. You look like you're looking for a baseball hat. What would happen? Here's my question. Whose waters, when you're dealing with something like this, was this somebody's technical territory? Do you know I what I mean? I looked at maps, and I believe it was like 200 or 300 miles uh, outside of Hawaii. I think that probably puts it in international waters. I think the conflict was the optics of what you're doing. Like you, you have to be seen doing nothing while you're spying on your enemy, and it's yeah. it's, it's all cloak and dagger shit. So they're like, we got to get this sub, and we have to not get caught getting this sub. So they sit around and they're pitching ideas. Can we go down? Can we uh, attach rockets to the sub? Can we attach balloons to it? Can we float it to the surface? Of course we can't. It's 13,000 feet under the ocean. Ugh, what do we do? The plan they settle on is to contact Howard Hughes. <laughs> Richest man in the world, inventor, contractor for the U.S. military at the time. The Spruce Goose. So you're telling me that they are puzzling how to get this sub, and they say, we're going to call Howard Hughes. I'll tell you why they call him. The reason they reached out to him is what they wanted was to have him build a enormous research deep mining ship that they could then have a recovery operation going on inside the ship. And his ship would go out to the site and sit there while they do their operation. And above water, it's just Howard Hughes in his crazy global marine development ship. He is the public cover for this operation. They need his name because he's a rich, globally known uh, inventor. That is the reason they contact Howard Hughes. They want him to be their clandestine spy beard. The Cold War is going to be over before they ever fucking do anything about this. This company designs and builds the Hughes Glomar Explorer, an enormous ship that publicly is going to go out to the Pacific to mine for manganese nodules from the ocean floor, which I did look up. Manganese nodules are rocks covered in, in deep ocean sediment and have a lot of valuable minerals. And so they went to Howard Hughes and they said, can you be interested in manganese nodules suddenly? You know, okay, I'm into this big time. What's funny to me is like, what what were they really thinking? Like, if you think about the technology, couldn't things have been improved upon by the time they get this out of the water anyway? I can only uh, take guesses, but I th but I always get the sense the Cold War was a simpler time where there was definitely a very legitimate threat that the world would get blown up. But underneath that, kind of everybody knew that, like, well, nobody wants that. So what what we got instead, instead of open warfare, was a bunch of white people doing stupid spy shit, trying yeah. to get code books and number stations, like which we also talked about. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they probably have different things now. Like, I don't know what you think you're going to get out of this, but they, they've got their sights set on it and they're going to do it. So. And I can tell you, I don't know um, how much they stood to gain, but I know that the money they spent on this project was the equivalent today of $4 billion, which actually doesn't feel like 
if you're going to be like, we could get a Soviet sub, that would be wild. Like, who knows? Like, it's like Christmas. Who knows how valuable it is? Yeah. So Howard Hughes lends his name to this project. He says he's going to go to the Pacific to mine for, let me look again, manganese nodules on the ocean floor. Right? Yeah. The K-129 was photographed at a depth of over 16,000 feet, and thus the salvage operation would be well beyond the depth of any ship salvage operation ever attempted. On November 1st, 1972, they start work on building the 63,000 short ton, 619 foot long Hughes Glomar Explorer. So not only is the ship going to be the cover story, but it also is so big that it will provide the stability and the power that they actually need to do this crazy scientific venture because they're in the middle of the ocean. So ocean currents are going to shift this boat around. It needs to be an oil drilling platform, essentially, in the middle of the Pacific. So they need a big, huge, stable ship that is also big enough to cover what they're actually doing. So over the next four years... This sounds like a Howard Hughes project. (laughs) So it includes a huge claw-like capture vehicle. It is essentially a claw game that they have to build piece by piece, 30 feet at a time. They're building pipes to move the claw down into the ocean. They're going to then grab the submarine and then take the pipes out 30 feet at a time, pulling the sub back up through the pipe. And then you have your sub on solid ground in your ship. This is the plan they settle on. So they head out on July 4th, 1974. The Glomar Explorer... On the 4th of July. On the 4th of July. Could not be more symbolic. The Glomar Explorer arrives over the site. For over a month, they're they're slowly... Laying pipe. Laying pipe. (laughs) Despite being monitored by the Soviets, this is just Howard Hughes out there being weird in the ocean. I think of the photographs determined that the sub was broken in two pieces. And so they're trying to bring like one half of the sub back up to the surface. The part of the sub they want to recover, it has the nuclear missiles, the submarines, uh, like engine technology, and what they think are code books, cryptology books. And so they're thinking to themselves, we're going to pull up into our ship something that has nuclear missiles on it. And waterlogged cryptology books. I don't know if I have it here, but I know that Mm -hmm. in one of the articles I read, they had technology for preserving waterlogged paper, specifically for that reason. Didn't read anything about (laughs) keeping nukes from blowing up when you're banging around pipes. (laughs) And an elevator shaft down to the bottom of the ocean. Oh my God. So they lower this crane down. They build their big pipe tube. They lower the crane. They secure the sub. During... The lift, bringing the sub back up, catastrophe. The submarine breaks, and two-thirds of it falls back to the ocean floor. Uh-huh. They lose what they think are most of the missiles, the documentation they're hoping to recover. They lose most of what they want to get. All they're going to get is a bunch of dead people. They do recover two nuclear torpedoes and the bodies of six crewmen. Now... These crewmen they recovered, they gave them a military burial at sea. They filmed this. They actually filmed all of it, but this is actually still classified today. So that film has never been released, except for the burial of the six crewmen, which they gave to Russia in the 90s to be like, hey, by the way, 
respectfully, we were stealing your sub, but by the way, we, you know. But we threw these guys into the water. Other crew members. <laughs> so after this recovery effort, they start planning for a second mission. Using the same thing. <laughs> Two cranes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yes, they're, they're going to try and do it again. But then a even stranger twist to this story happens. In June of 1974, just before the Glomar set sail the first time, burglars broke into the offices of the Summa Corporation, owned by Howard Hughes. They stole documents, one of which, tying Howard Hughes to the CIA and the Glomar Explorer, these documents Uh-oh. start to circulate, and by the autumn of 1974, media begins to pick up on this rumor that the U.S. is recovering the sub. Some of the reporters are filing FOIA requests, which today it doesn't seem new that like the government won't tell you something it doesn't want to tell you. But at this point, FOIA laws have just been reassessed and given a little more teeth. And also, this is sort of the era of Watergate. So people are very on edge about the government lying to them. So the government is in this strange spot because they are under obligation to be open and transparent about questions from journalists, etc. But if they tell the truth, if they say we did this operation and didn't recover what we wanted, then the Soviets will know they don't have to worry. And so now they're stuck. How do they say something Without saying anything. Huh. So they gather these Pentagon officials and these lawyers, and they're trying to figure out what do they say about this. The public has a right to know things they request, public information. But there are also CIA, U.S. intelligence officers who have an oath to keep information secret for the purpose of national security. And they're trying to figure out how to maintain both of these obligations at once. So they settle on a response that they give to one of these uh, journalist FOIA requests. We can neither confirm nor deny the existence of the information requested, but hypothetically, if such data were to exist, the subject matter would be classified and could not be disclosed. It is a perfect statement that is truthful and also says nothing. Balances both obligations at once. The journalists, I think, took, went to the courts with this because they were trying to get this information. And judges decided that, yes, the government has an obligation to keep things secret while also telling the truth. So this statement was upheld as a, an acceptable answer, which is why 40 years later, we can neither confirm nor deny is a very common response where you have to say something but can't say anything. It is now known colloquially as the Glomar response, where they had to say something without saying anything. You don't know who actually wrote that. So... Because it's really quite brilliant. It is. And the funny (laughs) thing is, the uh, this story is covered in an episode of Radiolab, uh, and they interview a a CIA lawyer, or like a Pentagon lawyer, um, they changed his name, but he's he was in these rooms at the time. Uh, they brought him in to figure out, like, we have to say something. And they asked him, like, how long did you work on what would become the statement? And he said it was about half an hour. 
I wanted to wait till the end because I want people to listen to this podcast, but it's a really, really fascinating story. The mileage they got out of this statement extends through today still. Yeah, anybody who pays attention to anything has absolutely heard that statement. Yes, yes. That guy is a genius. I kind of get it. I think it, I kind of get the necessity of statements like that sometimes. I find this to be a really stupid example because, like, the stakes feel incredibly uh, low. <laughs> well, I mean, at the like time, said, they weren't. This video is still uh, classified, and I took a lot of this from the CIA's page, which tells this story. It doesn't get into the Glomar response. They don't detail that part of it. Um, just straight up, like, Cold War maniacs, like, doing crazy things. I, I appreciate it because it speaks to a time that I don't know that I've ever experienced in my life. This statement is the result of a government that is trying to actually fulfill obligations on both sides instead of being like, well, we don't do press conferences. We don't answer. Yeah. Like there's a responsibility to like, well, we have to say something that actually is true without giving up anything. I don't know that we get that nowadays. Also, I do feel like um, it reminds me a little bit of like pleading no contest you know, where you're not pleading guilty and you're not saying you're innocent. But you're, you're just saying I'm no- present and <laughs> with yeah. nothing else. That's all you're giving up. And it's like, because if you say you neither confirm nor deny, it does make you think, well, if this wasn't the case, you would just vehemently deny it. Yeah. Yeah, they can't say either thing. And I also love, hypothetically, if it were true, it would be classified so we couldn't tell you. It goes a few steps beyond to be like, well, if it were true, we couldn't tell you. So I think we got all our bases here. (laughs) Like, that is the only response we will now have to give about this until for the rest of time. This huge, elaborate Cold War cover story to try and crane game a nuclear sub off the bottom of the Pacific. (laughs) Good story. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah. 